Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel, 5th book of history, 2 Samuel, and turn to chapter 9. It may seem that we have departed from our study in Matthew, and we have for this morning, and we have done so for Adoption Sunday, but the reality is that our heart for the helpless flows from that passage that we've been looking at it and and seeing the outworking of it from Matthew chapter 9. We've been seeing it for weeks and weeks. And how the Lord, as he moved throughout the countryside, going to the villages, going uh, to their cities, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, healing, taking care of every kind of affliction. But Matthew tells us that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. For they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And then he began to prepare his disciples to go forth and to meet that need, to be faithful shepherds among Christ's sheep, saying the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Oh, that we would have a heart of compassion. And that's really what I want us to see this morning as we look at a different narrative and and, and we look at really the lives of two people. We look at the lives of one who was uh, born to a king's son, but who was born crippled. Maimed from the age of five years old on. His name was Mephibosheth. And how while he was in a royal lineage, he was in a dynasty that God had rejected. And I want each one of us as human beings created in the image of God to see that we were made in the image of God, but that we are maimed by sin. And though in in creation, human beings were to be the pinnacle of creation, ruling under God when they fell into sin, the curse came, and we are all children of a cursed dynasty. But the true king has intervened for us. And the second character at which we want to look briefly this morning is David the king. Remembering that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the one who rules on the throne of David forever. And as good as we will see David's behavior toward Mephibosheth in this narrative, stop and consider this morning what Christ has done for you. 
And I make an appeal and I make it early because for those of you who have never come to faith in Christ, those of you who have never repented of your sin, who are trusting in yourself, your own goodness, or some sort of religiosity to earn you brownie points enough with God to get into heaven, I want to set your mind on the right course at the outset of the service. You need Jesus. Though you gain all of the world, if you have not Jesus, you have nothing. And my great prayer and my earnest plea is that if you are here this morning and you have never come to faith in Christ, consider your estate before a holy God and consider that the only Righteousness that will ever please God and ever save a soul is the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the only Savior the world has ever known. Mephibosheth was Saul's grandson. He was the son of Jonathan. Jonathan and David were, were, were very close friends. And some of you who may not be familiar with the history, I just want to give you a little bit of of, of the groundwork because David had been chosen by God to be king in Israel, even though Saul was already on the throne. And for 15 years after his anointment by the prophet Samuel in Bethlehem, for 15 years David lived running for his very life in order to gain the throne that was rightfully his. And during that time, God gave him protection and kept him safe and used amazing ways of keeping him alive. But you remember when David slew the giant uh, uh, Goliath, the hero of the Philistine army, it gained him recognition first with Saul. Saul took him home. Saul wouldn't even let him go back and live with his own family. Saul took him into his house as if he was his son. But the people started singing the praises of David. Yes, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul became possessed by a spirit of jealousy. And yes, he kept David at his table dining with the king. But Saul wanted to keep an eye on David because he knew that there was something about this young man he didn't like. And it was this. David was chosen by God to sit upon the throne, and now Saul has been rejected because he has been disobedient to God. Saul's jealousy and fear caused him to keep a close watch on David. And David finally had to just begin to flee for his life. The more insane Saul became, the more dangerous he was to David. And Saul hunted him for years. But as I mentioned, David and Saul's son Jonathan were fast friends. 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 3 tells us that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved David as his own soul. 
during the time that, uh, that Saul, Jonathan's father, was hunting David, David hid at, for some time in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, southeast of Hebron. They're in a wilderness forested area. And 1 Samuel 23 tells us that Jonathan, David's, or Saul's son rather, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And that's just a beautiful way of saying he encouraged him in, with the goodness of God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. And I shall be next to you. And that's an amazing statement because Jonathan's rightful heir to the throne in accordance with the dynasty of Saul. And yet he would step aside for the chosen one of God and take a second place to him. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. It's interesting, on more than one occasion, David had opportunities to kill Saul. And Saul was asleep, David could have sneaked up upon him, run him through with a sword or a spear, but David would not kill the Lord's anointed king. He would leave that to the Lord to handle that. He trusted God to protect him, to bring him ultimately to the throne. And Saul did know this. And in what can only be described as a somewhat tender moment... Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24. It, it, it's a tender moment, but it's kind of bizarre. It's kind of bizarre. In 1 Samuel 24, David announces to Saul, he's in hiding, but he's announcing orally, out loud to Saul, I had a chance to kill you. You are hunting me. I'm just a dog, a dead dog. You're hunting me, a flea. And then he says, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between you and me and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now look at verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, David? My son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. 
And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. I said it was bizarre. He's saying, please don't destroy my name after me. Please, I know you're going to be king. Please, I know that the Lord is keeping you safe and delivering you. And all of these things, he's calling him son. And what does he do next? He attempts to kill David again because he is so in love with his own self, his own dynasty, his own power that he would not relinquish it into the hands of the God that he claims to know. Not long after this, Saul is severely injured by Philistine archers in a great battle on Mount Gilboa. Jonathan, David's friend and Saul's son, as well as two of Jonathan's brothers, were slain on that battlefield. And Saul, after being injured by the archers, fell on his own sword and died. And it was at this point that David became king in Judah. It was another seven years before David would be the undisputed king over all Israel. David had already waited 15, and now what, seven more to be made a king? And the household of Saul was a very group that continued to work for those seven years following Saul's death to prevent David from ruling over all Israel. And yet, in our text this morning, we find David looking for one among that very household to whom he could show kindness. You remember, just a moment ago, we read that David swore to Saul that he would not eradicate his family after him. And now David would make good on that pledge to support the family of Saul. And the covenant that was made with Jonathan, and they made together more than one covenant. But but we will see David honoring that covenant. And he is looking for a way to do it. And so, as the supreme king... Of Israel, he is the supreme example of covenant faithfulness. This was the highest virtue virtue in Hebrew society. David would honor his oath and he would keep his covenant. And so as Saul brought David to dine at his table, so King David would bring Mephibosheth, the grandson of his enemy, the son of his friend, to dine at his table. Let's read together. First Samuel chapter 9, I'm sorry, Second Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. 
And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all of the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as And Father, as we read this text, we think of our own estate. We see ourselves as the crippled one, unable to do for ourselves, unable to go forth in any way spiritually. And we were nothing more than dead dogs. And yet, by your grace, you called us to yourself. You have called us by name, and you have brought us to dine at your table. Drive that home to us this morning. That all that we are, all that we have, and all that we will ever be is because of you, Lord God. Because of your work, Lord Christ. Because of your work. Powerful, powerful spirit. Help us to see our great need and how it has been met. But then, oh God, Compel us to meet the needs of others. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. David, high king in Israel, set upon the throne in Jerusalem, has put down all of his opposition. And so he began to fulfill his commitments. Searching for someone that he could just show some kindness to for Jonathan's sake. And here we have this servant who says, there is a son, his name is Mephibosheth. Now repeated throughout this, this, this chapter is this question, is there someone I can show kindness to? Is there someone that I can show kindness to? Is there someone I can show kindness to? And this is the great theme of this chapter. David was not the enemy of the house of Saul. In fact, he was the agent of God's kindness working to benefit the family of the former king who had been rejected by God and fell on his own sword. Now, I mentioned that Mephibosheth was hurt in an accident. He was fleeing 
uh, in the arms of his nurse, she dropped him. And he was five years old, and he was unable to uh, walk or walk well. But he had been able to, to grow up living in the household of a king. Ziba would uh, surely one who had taken care of him, and now he had a wife, and he had a son, if you would read on in the chapter, and I'll entrust that to you uh, when you have time, and he's being kept safely in a very well-to-do person's house. And by the way, if you read on through this narrative, and I would hope that you would want to read more and more and more, you will discover that the house at which Mephibosheth was, was staying, that the man is a great supporter of the king, Malkia. But because of his infirmity, Mephibosheth would never rise to, to be king if the dynasty stayed in place. He would never be anything more than a crippled son. But nevertheless, he was of Saul's lineage, and David would take him as if he was his own son. As Saul had taken David, so David would take Mephibosheth and allow him to dine at the king's table. Now, I don't know whether they had to carry Mephibosheth in. I don't know if he was able to walk with some sort of a, of a crutch. But I know this, that despite his infirmity, he did not take and see himself as, 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 as in any way greater than the king before whom he was appearing. And he fell upon his face before his sovereign. Behold, I am your servant. David called him by name, Mephibosheth. Behold, I am your servant. Yes, he was grandson of the king. He was somebody in that kingdom. But he was in the presence of a new king. He was in the presence of a superior king. And he would honor him and bow before him in his posture and in his words, I am nothing. I am nothing. And despite the fact that he was nothing, David issued a decree that would change Mephibosheth's fortunes forever. First, he said, all of the land that belonged to Saul, I restore it to you. Ziba and his sons and the other servants had been running the estate. After Saul's death, Mephibosheth is kind of in a self-imposed exile at, at, at this wealthy man's home at Lo Debar. And so Ziba and his sons, they're, they're owning the estate. They're running it. And they're happy to have it. Ziba was not happy at this decree. We'll look at that in just a moment. But the land would be restored to Mephibosheth. That family estate, a little north, three, four miles north of, of, of Jerusalem, would be returned to him. Second, Mephibosheth gained a privilege. David gave it to him, a privilege that he lost the day his grandfather and father died. The right to dine at the king's table. How long? Always. Always. 
He is, in effect, though this is an adult human being with a family of his own, he is, in effect, adopting Mephibosheth into his life, and he would take care of him because Mephibosheth was one in need, and David would show him kindness. He would eat forever at the king's table, And then third, David provided him with a large contingent of servants, including Ziba, along with his 15 sons and 20 servants. And their job now would be to take care of the estate, to till the land, to get the produce, and bring it and take care of Mephibosheth and his family. David's intent was that the son of Jonathan would be taken care of forever. So did Mephibosheth rise up and begin to say, oh, look, I'm great again? Oh, look, I'm somebody in this new kingdom just like I was in the old one? I have rights and privileges? I have all manner of of servants? Look how fortunate I am? No. No. He bowed down once again before David and he declared, I am your servant. I am a dead dog. Mephibosheth brought nothing to that table. He had nothing to offer the king. He had no power. He had no strength. He was just a crippled son of a dead, evil king. But for the sake of his oath and for the sake of his covenant, David showed him kindness. This was risky. This was risky. Not only to invite Mephibosheth into the home and to eat at table, but also to give him basically a small army, a small contingency of people that while he is unable to mount any sort of attack, might do so for him. This was risky on David's part. And I want to tell each one of you something that you already know, but it is true. Anytime that you love and choose to love a person, anytime that you choose to show compassion toward a person, anytime that you declare yourself as an agent of the kindness of God to another person, anytime that you do that, you are opening up yourself for risk. Risk of rejection. Risk of betrayal. Risk of rebellion. All manner of risk. The Lord Jesus came in love. God so loved the cosmos that he sent his only son. And all he did was love them. All he did was show them compassion and kindness and met their needs. And they rejected him, and they hated him, and they rebelled against him, and they crucified him. 
Remember, the Lord begins to send out his apostles. He says to them, they reject me, they're going to reject you. Christian, it's risky to open yourself up to another person. It is risky to open yourself up to a risky to adopt even a little baby. There is great risk. David could have been concerned that Mephibosheth was going to uh, have a rebellion against him. And in fact, the servant Ziba, who's probably not too happy that Mephibosheth's got all the land that he's been enjoying for the last seven years together with his sons and treating the other servants as if they are his servants. A little bit later, when David has to flee Jerusalem, and again, I would just encourage you to just read the rest of the chapter sometime this afternoon. It's, it's a great read. But his son Absalom was leading a revolt against him, and David, rather than to enter into a bloody war with his son, acquiesced, and David began to leave with his family, with his entourage, with his servants, and with as many as would go to uh, the wilderness with him. Look over at 2 Samuel chapter 19. I just want to read a little bit of this for you so you can just get it in context. Twenty-four. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. Now let me stop and say this. This is now David returning. Absalom has died, and the kingdom is restored to David, and he's returning to Jerusalem. And it says that Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. Now, that's interesting, because when David went out of the town, he, Mephibosheth wasn't there. When David was leaving, why isn't Mephibosheth coming with me, was the question that was asked. And Ziba lied to David about Mephibosheth and said, he's going to mount a rebellion because while you're gone, he thinks that he can gain the kingdom back for himself. We're going to get lied about. But Mephibosheth was pure in his heart. At least that's what the text seems to indicate here. He came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. From the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And that is a sign of mourning. You see it in the book of Leviticus. And he has not covered his mustache, or he has not, he has covered his face. He has left his, his feet, and his feet were already damaged, and he has just left them unattended, and he has not clipped his toenails, and he has not bathed, and he has not done anything. Can you imagine what he looks like now coming down on a donkey to meet the king? When the king, when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant, Mephibosheth, I said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself 
or perhaps it was a command, saddle a donkey for me that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. And obviously Ziba didn't do it, and he left, and he left Mephibosheth there in the house, and Mephibosheth says in verse 27, he slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like, listen to this, it's like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Isn't that amazing? not astounding? Is it not a picture of us? Are we not children of those who are doomed to death before the great king, before the judgment that is coming? The wheat fields are white unto harvest, which means the judgment is coming soon. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And we were doomed. We were of that broken, diseased dynasty of a lost humanity. And yet Christ called us by name and he has brought us into his presence. Mephibosheth says, I don't care about the land. In fact, if you read on, David's trying to figure out who's telling the truth here. But he certainly says, okay, I will give you half. You as Ziba divide the land. And then in verse 30, we see the heart of one who has been redeemed by the king. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all. For my Lord, the king has come home safely. Is enough. It is enough. And so in David, we, we, we see the hand of God. In David's treatment of Mephibosheth, we see how God has treated us in Christ. God is faithful and compassionate and full of grace. David was faithful. He could have easily had Mephibosheth slain. And there comes a point in time a little bit later on, and again, I would just entrust this to you, that the enemies of Saul from another nation ask for seven sons of Saul be given to them, sons or grandsons, it, 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 it all reads the same, that they might hang them as examples of the evil that Saul had done. And the text tells us, but David protected Mephibosheth. He let the other grandsons go. He let them be taken. He let them be hung at the will of the, in, of, of the enemy. But the one upon whom he had set his favor, that one was kept safe and did not fall into the hand of the enemy. That is what has happened to you. 
And the enemy, Satan himself, would love to destroy you. He would love to cripple your body once again. That which has been made whole is the spiritual body by Christ. And he would want you to return to the old ways. He would want to take your testimony and turn it into garbage. He would want you to crumble under the threat of lies and the threat of those who would take our lives because of our faith in Christ. But know this. I will never forsake you or leave you. No one can take you out of the Father's hands. No one can take you out of Christ's hands. You say we were no better than crippled, dead dogs. But because of love within the Trinity and the eternal covenant of redemption cut before the foundation of the world, you and I have been called by name and we have been drawn and we may dine at the king's table forever. And we do so now in a very figurative and limited way, but ultimately there is coming the great feast of the bridegroom. And the church will be gathered and we will be feasting forever at the king's table. God the Son has accomplished the redemption of a people out of a fallen human dynasty and he has done so first for the glory of God, second of all, so that we would be known as the children of God. You and I, Christians, we've entered into a new covenant. We are now sons and daughters by adoption. And though we may be stripped of all of our worldly stuff, even our family, even our relationships, we joyfully own Christ as our king, and that is enough. We will receive an eternal reward cannot be corrupted, that cannot be taken away, an inheritance beyond comprehension. All of this because of Christ, all of this in Christ. Christ is enough. And so because we have been shown such incredible kindness, you and I must be agents of God's kindness to show the gospel to a lost and dying race, to show compassion for those who are spiritually crippled, unable, trying to earn their way to God, to show them the truth that eternal life is in Christ alone with eternal possessions and eternal protection. As you and I have been adopted into God's family, we must likewise provide for others, especially children and young people who are in need of help, children who need Jesus. And when you and I think of adoption and we think of foster care as our attention is drawn there specifically this day in a peculiar way, but we are developing a broader culture of that among the church to where we are thinking about these things every day. But particularly this day, remember the great love of Christ for you. Remember the great meaning that has been given to you. Think of the great provision that has been given to you. 
The Lord has bestowed this freely upon us, life abundant and everlasting. We should join with the Lord Christ and see the crowds and have compassion for them, for they are harassed and they are helpless. They are sheep without a shepherd. They are fatherless and motherless children, abused, neglected, rejected, and like the crowds that Jesus saw and felt compassion for from his gut. We should see the vast numbers of children in need. 147 million orphans in the world. According to Michelle Vernon, the National Director of Orphan Sunday, lives in Georgia. She says, children are entering the foster care system at unprecedented rates nationwide. There were 437,465, almost half a million, children in foster care at the end of 2016. That's national. Georgia also has a crisis. There are more children in foster custody now than ever before, and there are not enough homes to house them. The number of children in foster care, in, in, in 2013, there were 7,600 children in foster care in the state of Georgia. Five years later, May of 2018, this year, there are more than 15,000 in state custody. Double, nearly doubled in five years. And, and the, most government officials think it is because of the, the opioid crisis is the, is the reason for this spike. But whatever the reason, you and I cannot stick our head in the sand. We are not unaware of this crisis. We stood here a year ago and made incredible pleas, and we have seen a small movement among families within our church. Others are, are, are supporting children in other countries, and you're able to do that financially. Some of you travel to be with those whom you have adopted. We have this movement within our own church. But oh, that God would raise up families willing to take in foster children with an eye toward adoption. Ms. Vernon wrote on, with an estimated 384,000 church congregations nationwide in America, one family in each congregation committing to foster care would fulfill the needs of the U.S. foster care system alone. But we must develop this culture of adoption and awareness to whereby... I would challenge us to let's, let's, let's plug in with the Georgia Baptists. Let's, let's create our own orphanage. It's still right here. And I just pray that if you would look and see how God has treated you, how can you reject another person? You say, well, it is risky. Yeah, it's risky. 
Some of you who are adopted parents know the risks better than I and can speak to them much better than I. But you think about it, children who have been moved from place to place, from home to home, from school to school, sometimes they, are, they, they have to be relocated far away from their friends and everything that they have known, the familiar surroundings. Can you imagine what that does to a little child or even to a teenager? And so as a result, we've got a lot of behavioral problems, a lot of disciplinary issues. Those are possible, and they're probably likely. But my friends, is not the risk worth taking to save a life? Yeah. Anytime you show compassion, you open yourself up to the possibility of pain. And of rejection. The next time you start thinking about that, you think about how often you have given your Lord great pain. And yet, He has not forsaken you, He has not left you, He will not leave you fatherless, and He will keep you forever. Vermin Pierre. He's a lead pastor of Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. I think he's of Haitian descent. But he and his wife are longtime foster parents, and they're very involved in promoting adoption and foster care. And he wrote this. I like to tell people that we were the people in the back of the filing cabinet with the red stamp saying, do not adopt. You look at the file on humanity and it says, prone to rejection, prone to running away, prone to disobedience. There's no reason why God should have loved us and yet God did. He set his love upon us and it was a redemptive love to reconcile us to himself, to restore us to himself and restoring a people to himself. We were meant to be a part of the family of God, and we fell away. But God still brings us back to himself. Adoption is costly. It's costly financially, emotionally, spiritually. It is a draining thing sometimes, and yet the reward of taking a life bringing it into the presence of the Lord through your family, through your church. This is true religion. It requires sacrifice. But remember the great cost at which we were adopted, the life of the Son of God. But as he has so loved us, we must also love the, the unlovable. You and I have been invited and will dine at the king's table always. Let us invite little ones, crippled ones, rejected ones to dine at our table always. Would you bow with me? I know not everyone can be a foster parent.
I know not everyone can adopt, but there are so many ways. And tonight when we gather at 530, we are going to learn and see various ways whereby we can minister to the fatherless and to the, the motherless. And how we can help others who are adopting, others who are uh, fostering. How to give our time, our energy, our love, our support. But at this moment, I want to see yourself one last time in these two characters at whom we look today. You were chosen by God to be kings. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. We have been set apart as David was set apart to rule upon the throne of Israel. You and I will reign with Christ. And David stopped to show companion to his enemy's child. Can we not show compassion to the children of a fallen dynasty. And in thinking of that, remember Mephibosheth, prince of a fallen dynasty, adopted, though he was pretty much useless, into the family of a sovereign, eating forever at that table, expressing from his heart that he doesn't need houses or lands or anything else because he has his king. So it is with us. Will you forsake all to follow Christ? If, if the Lord has struck your heart with your need for salvation this morning, I encourage you even now, things have quieted down after the initial movement of everyone to their place of service for this moment. But if you would rise and walk through the doors that are directly opposite of me, there's someone there who can tell you what it means to follow Christ and how it is that you might follow him. If the Spirit of God is moving in you and urging you, do not resist. Today is the day of salvation. And so, Father, as we consider our state, realizing that you have brought us to yourself just because you wanted to, just because of love and the covenant within the Godhead, you have brought us as your people to dine at your table. We praise you and give you thanks. Oh God, give us the gumption and the desire to see others join us at your table. Hear our prayer, O oh Lord, incline your ear to us. Through Christ our Lord we pray.